ordinarily I would take a guest out to their favorite restaurant, but on this episode I have the pleasure of sitting here with tea at Shea Self. So, Will, thank you very much for having me over. You're welcome. When you did ask, I mean, basically, I just don't eat out that much. But you did recommend the Old India Club, which does look like a very interesting place and actually came quite close to its death. It was petitioned to keep standing after there were plans to revamp or change it altogether. So it's certainly somewhere I'll check out. Do. It's a little kind of time capsule of India circa about 1958. And a bit of a literary hangout as well, is it not, historically? Uh, I think the Congress Party kind of hung out there. It's got some literary associations, but I think it's more that, you know, somebody like Nehru was probably there or something like that. I mean, it's got a lot of association with the South Asian community here in London. Phone is the third of a trilogy of novels that began with Umbrella, published in 2012, although you finished the novel a bit before that, about seven years ago. And the second, subsequently, Shark in 2014. It's a book about... Memory, secrecy, delusion and deception. It's about the way that technology holds together the seams of who we think we are and how we gauge our relationship to others and the world and its power to very quickly unravel these illusions. It's also about the inability of technology to adequately predict human impulses, even while it increasingly shapes them. And it deals, like the two preceding novels, specifically, as you said yourself, with the way in which technology emerges spontaneously from human activity without inbuilt logic or any guarantee of progress. When did you sit down to begin writing Phone, and how did you sense that this story was going to unfold? Hmm, that's difficult. Basically, when I finished Umbrella, I was casting around, you know, I was thinking, what was I going to do? And I think, you know, it's a little exaggerated, but I think I said, you know, the other two books kind of downloaded into my... <laughs> into my uh, onto my hard disk and then I just wrote them out I could see it was a trilogy I'd had a conversation with someone who'd said you know maybe you should just press on with this project but I I think at the end of the trilogy I wanted to yes it was a much more zeitgeisty book I wanted to say something about now about where we were now I'd always known it would have to go to Iraq that was a given uh, I always knew that the, the kind of starting point would be essentially Baudrillard and the Gulf War will not take place. It was going to have to be like that. But I didn't know what I wanted out of the post-9-11 conflicts. I just had no... The subject was, was vast, ongoing, strange. Uh, <laughs> uh You know, any way you sliced or diced it, all of my themes were there to be had. But again, there's a problem of recency, you know, just the problem of of rendering recency, which is very, very, very hard for a novelist. Mm. Most of your problem is that, you know, you're cheated of eternity by leaving the fingerprints of the present. But I think with recency, it's even harder. You know, for some reason, you, you leave blurry fingerprints. So I, I, I was very much guided by the material that I was given. At the beginning of the book, the reader is reintroduced to Zach Busner, the experimental psychologist who appears in many of your novels and who, in phone, is showing advancing signs of Alzheimer's, for which his grandson has given him a phone as a memory aid. Now, I must confess, I and many people I know increasingly use our phones as memory banks. Could you say a little bit about what significance memory plays in this story? Well, I mean, you know, the present's only the top of the past, as somebody said, you know, and Montaigne says in our part of the country, we call a man with no memory stupid, you know, so 
I think we all have a kind of permanent anxiety uh, about personal memory because, you know, personal memory stands in, in relation to the kind of ideology of being you as kind of history and historiography does to the ideology of nation states or, or greater entities or humanity collectively. I mean, so obviously it's a big fucking deal. Um, and, and how it's treated and how it's guarded and, and how it's used. Um, but at the same time, I think that we all experience a kind of, you know, fuck it feeling about our own memories. We're, we're only too aware at a personal and subjective level how one faulty they are for most of us with some exceptions such as the butcher the butcher being one of your characters in the book uh, yeah, yeah, and Dad. Yeah, yeah. The, the protagonist who's a sort of better than super recognizer and another of these kind of autist savants who can kind of remember everything but they they exist but they're rare uh most of us can't remember <laughs> remember anything really and certainly i think you know one of the odd things is if we're preoccupied by things like you know the sh particular sheen on the velvetiness of a butterfly's wings there's not a lot of even in the massive human brain there isn't a vast amount of ram to cope with that you know mm. you, you pays your money and you takes your choice i mean I think that that's why people who wield power tend to be a little bit sociopathic because they must be just so zoned out on what the fuck's going on most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> In Harper's Magazine not long ago, you wrote, quote, It strikes me that we're now suffering collectively from a tyranny of the virtual, since we find ourselves unable to look away from the screens that mediate not just print, but increasingly reality itself. This seemed to me to reveal much of what led you to write phone in the first place. Um, perhaps you can say a little bit about this. What is the tyranny of the virtual? Um, well, I mean, I think if you think that an actual object is something that is common, commonly perceived and is existent within three dimensions, then and indeed within four dimensions, then you can say a virtual object is something that is existent, but which does not exist. You know, ideology has been a problem for humans for for a while now, but this is another. You know, the mistake is not to understand that the image is is an advance on ideology for all sorts of reasons. I mean, you know, one of the problems since two thousand and sixteen is now possible to imagistically mobilize people in ways that you really couldn't do before, and and that helps, of course, to mobilize illiterate and stupid people who can't read or reason. Need I ask of any recent examples? I mean, Trump didn't win the popular vote, but he managed to activate a, a coalition of the thick, uh, as did the Brexiteers, which is not to say that the Remainers necessarily don't have vast squadrons of stupid people voting for them as well. Let's be even-handed mm. here. But, but there is a thing about politics. You know, the truth of the matter is, People's engagement with representative institutions was quite high in the past, but their power was very limited. Throughout the 20th century in Britain, there was a dialectic of the ceding of power to increasingly organised and civic engaged uh, and collectivised proletarian groupings through unions, through their own industries. Socialism was part of the air people breathed because they lived socialised lives. I mean, they, the Labour Party is now being powered by a kind of, you know, 500,000 middle-class clicktivists who, who care about, you know, gender-neutral toilets and, and are increasingly anti-Semitic. <laughs> so we ain't going back there again <laughs> in a hurry. 
what what upset me, I suppose, was I, f- I thought my own life was quite denatured enough already. I mean, I'd already spent my kind of 20s in a car <laughs> or in front of the telly on drugs uh, and quite a lot of, of my 30s as well. So I didn't really want to spend my 40s in front of a screen or kind of and I was finding it very hard because of how I worked and why I did, mm. uh, which involved being both sides of the screen to to avoid that. The thing I understood was absolutely pivotal was wireless broadband and then the kind of, you know, unified electrical field of wireless broadband and, and the mo- mobile handheld effective computer. You consider this the beginning of the tyranny, as it were? I think that's when it kind of freeze dries mm. into being. Yeah, that's the real inception of the truly spectacular in, mm. in the kind of Debordian sense yeah, yeah. paradigm. When applied to the mediatized world, Debord said that the spectacle came into being in the 1920s. Baudrillard said something similar about the simulacrum. McLuhan's unified electrical, electrical field long antedates the internet. Mm. It's composed, you know... And on the face of it, and that's what had animated the whole trilogy in the first place. Yeah. If you want to talk in in terms of when humanity can be swayed collectively by things that are not, that (laughs) nonetheless present themselves as commonly perceived objects. Once you've got a technology that can present ideology as real, then, you know, you're really in trouble. Why was it important to you to focus on the Iraq war? Because often with your novels, everything sort of joins up in the end. Mm. Um, How does this join up with the other themes in the book? Well, the Afghanistan and Iraq wars were the last time that I'd felt at a personal level a kind of righteous engagement with opposition to something. So I'd been involved at a personal level in the anti-war campaign. So I had that kind of memory of a particular sort of reaction to world events. Um, Did it feel quite as clear-cut at the time? It didn't feel clear-cut morally. It felt clear-cut what the problem was going to be. And and we were entirely right, you know. I mean, two days after 9-11, I met with the people who went on to animate Stop the War, and everybody knew what was going to happen. Yeah, it's the right time period. It's it's when everything is happening. But as I say, I, I let the material take me where it would. I don't think I, I'd thought that I would write about a shooting war to the extent <laughs> there was one. Yeah, or I wanted to write particularly about the tech, you know, to the extent it was in play. Uh, but the people I spoke to had <laughs> the best experience of tech was rigging up to the to the to the remains of the Iraqi internet to to toss themselves off with their girlfriends and you've said about that period since that you were left shocked at the degree to which the british public were willing to see this pass in almost entire complicity or with the bare minimum of protest having come of age at that time you were either incensed by what you saw or you were numbed by it because, as you say, it was so mediated through television, the internet, newspapers, 
a young suburban kid like myself really had a very mute sense of what was really going on. And only on reflection with the Chilcot report does it become clear just what an affront it was. Yes, that's right. But And you're right, I suppose. That's, and it's fascinating to hear that from you and to see how it's contributed to your climate. Your, but for me, it was weather. You know, it happened in real time. So I remember exactly because, I, you know, I'm a journalist. And that's one of the things I do. And, and certainly at that time, I was very interested. My then wife was a journalist and editor and was very interested in the news beat mm. we heard the discovery of kelly's body more or less live on the radio i mean i remember it all vividly happening and of course i understood the consequences very quickly mm. realized what had happened mm. i was working for the today program at the time i knew rod little i knew um what he was up to with andrew gilligan yeah i mean it was it was all very close to me Let's talk more about the characters in the book. I think those who know your work know that you use fictional narrative to explore psychosis, modern influences on the human psyche, and that your characters, a lot like those in J.G. Ballard's novels, are very much there to illustrate how personalities are changed over time through a kind of war of attrition of these influences, rather than being there to be relatable or for the reader to necessarily see themselves. They're sometimes crash dummies who are sort of set up and the influences you want to demonstrate uh, are sort of foisted on them. I resist that characterization of the characters. I certainly think they were more hieratic and Ballardian, as I say, up until the mid-2000s, but I think that started to change. The rest of the points you make are quite right, but there you see, if you just take out the idea of the crash test dummy and go with the rest of what you said, that seems quite accurate, the working out of kind of... But maybe that's what we are, in which mm. case maybe we are, in fact, crash test dummies. I mean, surely one of the most kind of unheimlich moments in recent popular culture is when you realise that the uh, robots in Westworld, the recent series, have become mm. conscious. Mm. Uh, and, of course, one of them immediately blows his brains out. Mm. And, you, and you get a terrible, uncanny feeling because... You look at the robot and you think, hang on a minute, if the robot's sentient, maybe I'm a robot. Didn't you feel that? So, you know, what am I trying to say? It doesn't matter whether a character has an interior life or not. I see maybe your point. it's just a kind yes. of balloon floating above a kind of predetermined animal that's mm. scuttling around on the ground of things. Westworld, you sound like you're a fan. Yeah, I liked the first season and then it just got deeply silly. And even at the end of the <laughs> first agree. season, yeah. it was getting a bit silly. I must admit, it has lost me a bit. Um, oh, I wanted to mention now, I'm a Joy Division fan. I discovered the band when I was 16 and now I have many clickety-clackety CD albums gathering dust along with the rest of the pre-digital detritus. But in this novel, you chose to plant fragments of Joy Division lyrics. What, what made you want to do that? Well, you've got to be careful what you say. <laughs> But, I mean, um, fragments, let's say. Mm. Fragments, we'll say. I mean, I, I use use music a lot. It's, it's quite um, calculated in the kind of word stream. I use all kinds of music. I use rhyme. I use fragments of advertising, jingles, a lot of pop, because it's ubiquitous in the 20th century, not mm. just for me, but for lots of people. And particularly now, when you walk along the street and people are kind of pipe must be in their, these weird pop sound worlds the whole time. I should just say that I know it's the litigious business taking lyrics and putting them anywhere that's then going to be published, but I scored terribly poorly trying to find any. <laughs> so you needn't worry. 
I believe you wrote a report for Philips Electronics back in the late 80s about the way video games uh, at the time were increasingly incentivizing human appetites for sex and violence. And in phone, again, you reference video shooter games of the 90s and early noughties. Can you talk a bit about those experiences of observing early forms of bidirectional digital media and how you think your suspicions about it have fared since? Yeah, I think that's when I began to catch up on what was going on. I had a friend who was working at Philips and looking at electronic publishing in the late 80s, early 90s. I can't remember exactly when. And he asked me to look at what was going on. I mean, I'm not saying it was some great kind of Marvin Minsky act of extraordinary futurology. I think the problem remains for gamification. And, you know, people like not being in control in narrative. In fact, that's and I'd argue that's because, you know, you feel sympathy for Anna Karenina, even though you, you, you read the novel again. You're mm. still sort of saying, don't go off with that arsehole, Bronski. It's going to go really badly, yeah? <laughs> uh, yeah? And that's because we appreciate that we're fated in the way that she is. And I, I think gamification's a problem in that sense. It, it, it provides the, the, the person who wishes to be entertained with too much agency. I certainly saw that the problem with gamification was that you needed to adrenalize in order to create motivation. You could create games where you sort of said, well, look over here or do that or solve this little task. But it's a bit meh, really. You want to be able to kill shit or fuck it. That's what's <laughs> going to get you to pick up the little gig or doo-doos. Yeah, and, and that sort of is how it transpired. Kiddies go up to a certain point and then mm. they get on board with the killing. I mean, of course, there's a lot of research that's now proposing that these canalize rather than enhance aggression. I was supervising a computer games thesis, actually, this year, a very gifted young scholar who, who believes in a lot of that research and was saying that, I can't remember exactly which game it was, that there were problems with the release of it. And he was saying, you know, this will have 25 million kind of angry, mostly young men on the streets with a lot of adrenaline they don't know what to do with. Mm. And it could be a real civil order problem if the game didn't come through in that way. So I think, you know, again, what do we know about this? Not a lot. Are there people working to get us quantifiable data? Sure, there's shitloads of them. Will it be valuable or affect the public debate? Very much doubt it. Mm. Zach's grandson, Ben, is a savant and you know many savants yourself. But he has an important role as character in the story, doesn't he? Yeah, he's a kind of, um, it's not clear, he might be writing the book. <laughs> he seems very mystical, and he seems yeah. to know a lot more than anybody else, it turns out, mm. though he presents as a kind of lummoxy kind of teenager who's sort of monkeying around with computers. But once you get inside his head, he seems really weird and omniscient and to sort of know all sorts of odd shit. Towards uh, the end, that's when I start to hear Ben's voice in the first person. Yes, well, I mean, the, the end of the book's written in the conditional. Mm. I know none of the critics spotted that. Mm. Or if they did, they didn't put it in their reviews. I think the last 40 or 50 pages are, in, are written in the conditional tent. Again, I think it's it ambiguous. Yeah, very much so. I, I very much wanted the thing to end with a kind of, you know, fizzling out of of any, you know, sense of an omniscient third-personal or impersonal narrator lingering behind it, but with no persona to come mm. to the fore. I thought it was a very effective culmination of the story, particularly when throughout the book you've referenced people looking at their phones and thinking for a moment that it is the person who's calling in their hand, not knowing who and what the special relation is between object and subject. 
I hadn't thought of that particular slant on it, I have to say, but, you know, that's the delight of writing books in particular. Mm. Is, you know, it's a bit like a game in that sense. You know, I'm asking you as a reader to do a great deal, and I'm well, I'm well aware of that. But, you know, that's just a sign of how much I value the reader. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really powerful collaboration to go to engage with the material and i hopefully the interpretations are myriad you know one would hope well self thank you very much thank you 